Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many, many more. This week I am joined by Canadian creator and producer for film and television, published author, public speaker, journalist and former broadcaster Zaka Nawaz. You might know her from her sitcom Little Mosque on the Prairie, which premiered to the highest ratings CBC had in over 20 years and won multiple awards. I was among the many loyal viewers. Um, Or her most recent publication, uh, Jamila Green Runes Everything. I did also read um, Laughing All the Way to the Mosque. I think it was uh, a few years ago too. Zaka, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. Um, I remember watching um, Little Mosque on the Prairie and thinking, finally, a sitcom where the subjectivity of Muslim characters uh, is, you know, present, three dimensional, and where we are not there only as uh, a proxy for, you know, uh, a wider, a wider conflict. So it was a really refreshing uh, sitcom. How how long ago was Little Mosque on the Prairie? The last episode aired 10 years ago. Wow. <laughs> so it was wow. 10 years old, yeah. And and as I recall, there really was nothing like that on TV at that time. You know, we're doing this episode in 2022. There's a lot more, you know, we're going to call it diversity for the sake of, of uh, brevity, but um, on TV, in television content, although I'm still not sure there's anything quite like that, but we'll come back to it. Um, so I, I guess my first question I wanted to ask you was, you know, how did the sitcom even come about? It came about, I was doing short comedy films for a while in the early 1990s. Late night, uh, I think my first one was called Barbecue Muslims. It was 1995. And I had you know, like like every, like many, many immigrant daughters from the South Asian diaspora, my parents wanted me to become a medical doctor. And I had drank the Kool-Aid and I was totally convinced that I was going to become a gynecologist. And I did, I had a science degree from the University of Toronto. But it was there that I started taking arts courses and realizing that I was doing much better in my arts courses. And my enthusiasm for organic chemistry and physics and calculus started to wane. And when it came time to apply, like every year got worse and worse with my marks. I, but I still felt I had to keep going because I had started the science degree. So when I applied to medical school, I was rejected. And it was such a shock because I had never had a plan B and I didn't know what to do with my life. And, you know, my father had raised me with this ethos that women should be educated and make a ton of money. And then you'd never need men or marriage, like marriage and men were the worst things that can happen to women in their careers. And so I felt like your dad told you that (laughs) Yes, he brought me up. He was like this proto typical feminist without, without really meaning to be partly because 
you know, after the partition and, you know, when he would go back home, he would see a lot of female relatives uh, married at a young age. And he already he'd always felt that had they been able to go on and become educated, they would have fulfilled, you know, their potential as human beings. But, you know, it was it was a difficult, you know, that was a tough time in those days because there was a lot of uncertainty and danger and, and women's lives and, and marriage, early marriage was sort of a way to keep them safe. And whenever, even when women would come and visit us, he would always ask them, you know, what degree do you have? And if she had a BSc or, or a BA, he would say, why didn't you get your master's? And of, of course, it, he pinpointed marriage and children as the place where women stopped their education or their careers. And so in his mind of course it never occurred to him that maybe the man could help the woman <laughs> with her life and her career there's so in his, there's always that but in his generation he felt that if a woman got to the top of her career she should just make the money and just cut out the man and the marriage and the children because why bother because they were just they just seemed to be a waste <laughs> of her potential so he raised me like this of course my mother did not appreciate um, these comments about her life being a potential failure having married my father but it sort of like it affected me psychologically and when I didn't get into medical school of course my mother was like oh you know finally there's this like moment of an opportunity you know maybe now we can think about marriage and then she used her connections and and you know young men started showing up on the doorstep and I and I re realized I, I've got to pull it together I can't like wallow in misery and I remember a friend of mine had always said she wanted to go to journalism school and and she always talked about writing novels and becoming a filmmaker but there was no role model in those days of Muslims who chose those you know paths even like the arts it was like this forbidden sexy career that the other normal people did not conservative you know brown Muslim women but I was desperate because my mother was like quite quite keen <laughs> on of getting me married so I applied to at um, what is then called what was then called the Ryerson a journalism school and I applied and the man you know gave me an interview and he said you know you're the only one that has come to us with a science degree everybody else has a BA and I said oh I I know you 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 guys are the most competitive journalism school in Canada and I knew that I in order to compete against you know hundreds and hundreds of applicants I would have to be unique and the way I was going to be unique is to get a science degree instead of a BA because I feel that there aren't enough journalists with a science background who understand the issues and with a science background I think you know, flip. <laughs> thank you he believed me Miriam he believed me and he let me in based on nothing because I had no portfolio I had nothing and it was there that I blossomed and I realized I should have been in the arts all along but even in journalism school I realized that probably I should have gone to film school because there was this creative itch inside of me it's hard to explain when you love story and storytelling because journalism isn't as much storytelling as it is telling other people's stories and so yeah. I didn't want to do that now like a third degree and so a friend said it's like you know filmmaking is like plumbing you don't really need to get another degree you just need to start making films and yes, he you told do. me to take he said just make a short film and so I took a course at the Ontario College of Art it was just like three weeks um, and you know you get divided into five uh, a team of five people you are the writer director your other colleagues become your crew and I was thinking in 1995 what could I possibly make a short film about and that was when the Oklahoma bombing happened mm -hmm. and it was the largest domestic terror incident in the U.S. and in the Toronto Star there were little pictures of Muslim suspects going across the cover <laughs> and then I think it was like two or three days later they they uh, arrested Timothy McVeigh 
And I was thinking to myself, what, what, like, how could you like have all these Muslims being pulled off planes and God knows what was happening to them. And then suddenly it's a white guy. And so I made a short film called Barbecue Muslims where uh, two Muslim brothers are sleeping one night and their barbecue in their backyard gets blown up and they're accused of being Middle Eastern terrorists. And they're like, we're not even from the Middle East. Like we were just sleeping. We don't know why the barbecue blew up. And it turned out to be um, the barbecue anti-resistant front who were going around blowing up barbecues because they felt that they were causing too much air pollution. And so... But because right. they accidentally blew up a Muslim barbecue, no one was paying attention to them. And they were picketing in front of the police and they were arguing with each other. Like, why would you pick, you know, um, a Muslim family's barbecue? And they're like, you know, they're ecumenically neutral. Barbecues are just out in the backyard. No one labels them according to what faith group owns them. And that got um, accepted to the Toronto International Film Festival. I still remember a very irritated phone call from the organizer who said, there are going to be people who will be so upset that their film got rejected because of yours, because they have submitted technically superior films. And then there's you, right? Because I had my parents' house. I had recruited the neighbors, my brother, his friend. I mean, it was very, you know, it. Well, you can see it on my website. It was it rudimentary. Was very, it was rudimentary, but they're like, we cannot ignore the fact there's nobody doing satires about terrorism yeah and when it and when it played people were laughing and I was then it occurred to me because I didn't even realize it was a comedy at the time it was my very first film and that's when it occurred to me that I had the ability to make comedic films about political issues and particularly about stereotypes about Muslims which at the time was about terrorists and that's where I realized I, this is where I belong. I belong in filmmaking. And I didn't even realize television at that time. I was just making short comedies at that point. And that's how it started. So you said just now, and I couldn't ignore that, you said uh, that's the stereotype at that time about Muslims, Muslims as terrorists. Do you feel like we have moved on from that particular stereotype? Are there new stereotypes now taking over and uh, taking precedence? You know, it's so interesting that you said that. I just wrote an op-ed for the Globe and Mail and newspaper here about how I feel. Everyone was so upset when Trump got elected. But I, myself, realized the opportunity he gave Muslims. <laughs> because before he was elected, it was day and night, ISIS, 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 ISIS on the headlines. But the moment he got elected, suddenly all the white supremacists came out of the woodwork and all the media just like, you just feel the collective creaky gaze, like shifting going, what's happening? Who are these people? Where have they been? And all of a sudden there was this sense in the media that there was this, you know, other danger that they had been ignoring for so long and had, and had essentially enabled this, you know, the rise of white nationalism that, that Trump had given um, voice to and they know they felt emboldened and then they came out. And then soon after that, we had the Capitol riot on January 6th in the U.S. And in Canada last January, we had the white trucker convoy. And for the first time in my life, I started hearing journalists talk about white terror and white radicalism and white danger. And I had never heard those words before. So I had written this kind of flippant op-ed. I said it was like our brown fairy godmother, like sort of waved her wand and said, you have done your time <laughs> in the headlines. Someone else is going to replace you. Because I never thought I would live to see that day with, with the media. Because I could hear the the just, you know, incredulity in their voices. Like, you know, when they would say white terror, like these are white terrorist groups and, and the rise of the KKK and the Nazis and the, you know, Proud Boys. 
and and they were dominating the headlines. And and I and I feel that the the narrative of danger has shifted, mm-hmm. at least here in North America, when it comes to reporting on these issues. Because now you can't say with a straight face, Muslims, you know, are. Do you remember those battle days when the clash of civilizations and you know Bernard Lewis and you know all. Oh, do all I? These, yeah, I mean, I remember when Bill Maher, when ISIS first formed, it was of the 1.6 billion Muslims on Earth. All of them have some sort of, you know, connection to the savage practices of ISIS. <laughs> like that, that that was incredible commentary, but. But Trump changed all that. It, it mm-hmm. completely changed all that and has given, you know, emboldenment to, to white supremacy and white nationalism. And the media has noticed much to their chagrin and they're realizing that they have spent, you know, decades villainizing this one group and have, you know, essentially by ignoring this other group. And and for, for you know, I, I am happy about that because I feel like there's this chink in the armor and we have this opportunity that didn't exist before in terms of changing the narrative. So it's interesting you say that because obviously um, a few things that came to mind as you were saying that one was this idea that comes up a lot I think in conversations on whiteness which is that there needs um, you know if uh, black and brown people raise a concern with something it has to be validated by the white gaze for it to actually be a problem so black and brown people could say for a long time like hey guys <laughs> there's a real problem with like the the, the fascists you know the, the white terrorists from your mitts and people are like yeah you know and then as soon as it becomes like a national affair and people are, you know, white people suddenly feel like, oh, 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 this could affect us because actually, you know, it's impinging on like the very nature of the democracy we live in. Um, suddenly it becomes a real issue. Suddenly it becomes validated. Um, do, do you sense that that applies uh, in other any other areas i'm i'm sort of taking it so gratuitous way but in tv sometimes has it you know i I also work in tv do you ever find that you could come up with a a, an idea or an understanding of something that could be a good concept that you think would really run uh, but it you know it's sort of dismissed until there's some kind of a shift in what we might call um, sort of the, the mainstream, the white the white um, consensus on something, and then suddenly it becomes a brilliant idea um, that uh, that somebody brilliant greenlit, uh, as opposed to somebody equally brilliant um, foresaw quite a long time before. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like I I was making short films for a long time, and I noticed that they weren't opening up opportunities for me the same way they were opening up opportunities for white colleagues. And there was just a sense that it didn't matter how talented I was or what I was creating. There just wasn't space for it in, you know, spaces where you air these sort of things. So television was a closed world. Film was a closed world. And I was aware of that. I wasn't, but I didn't have the knowledge or the vernacular that we do today to understand mm-hmm. what was happening. I could just feel the sense of I'm closed off. And, you know, I had gotten married and I was busy having my piles of babies and I was just writing and working and writing and working. And what was different looking back now for me was that the CBC, much like the BBC in Canada, they are, you know, they're funded by taxpayer dollars and a lot of questions are always asked nationally should we still fund them are they still relevant what are they really doing that's worthwhile they haven't had a hit in a long time and 
their mandate is to represent, you know, all the regions of the country. I was living in Saskatchewan. I live in Saskatchewan, which is above North Dakota. They t- all the shows tend to come from Toronto or Vancouver. And that's that they had a lot of shows that were national hits. And Canada wasn't known for sitcoms. Partly we live close to the United States, which is a country of 300 million and we only have 30 million. And they just have the ad dollars to get all the Canadian eyeballs onto their shows. And we, so our industry was really struggling and we couldn't really convince anyone in Canada to watch our shows because they weren't aware the shows existed. And when they decided to make the pilot for Little Mosque on the Prairie, I was told by industry executives, don't worry, this is just one of, they're just doing this because they have to cover their bases of representation. It won't go anywhere past the pilot level if you even make it that far. But what was interesting was that we, we were on the edges of the 2005 cartoon controversy in Europe, the, the Danish country cartoon controversy. And they found out in the U.S. that we were making this show about Muslims. But it wasn't going to be like a, a, like the usual sitcom with a, you know, a, a couch in the living room. When they found out that it was going to be set in the mosque and it was going to be a comedy about Islam with Muslims talking about Islam, they were convinced that the CBC was doing something very, very dangerous and that the CBC was going to get blown up and cars were going to get flipped and they wanted to be <laughs> on the front seat of this. So they sent their reporters to Canada. And, you know, no television show in Canada ever gets like CNN and the New York Times showing up and covering our show being shot, which meant the Canadian media suddenly started paying attention, going, what is happening? (laughs) What is happening at the CBC? So when we aired the pilot, it was like record ratings. I remember getting a phone call from a journalist going, do you know how high these ratings are? And I didn't know what the numbers meant. But he said, these are so high. The CBC hasn't had numbers this high in 20 years since Anne of Green Gable aired 20 years ago. And there was apparently someone said at Toronto in the headquarters, people were like cheering, you know, in the hallways because it suddenly this show made the entire network like relevant again. Because mm-hmm. people were watching the show. It was being talked about around the world. The media around the world were going crazy. And it was all because people were expecting violence to happen in Toronto and they were like waiting for it oh wow so it it gave us the ratings we needed to survive and then keep going and and I got all these calls from Hollywood agents and producers who were like wow so this is a show with a diverse audience about a, a diverse community Muslims in a mosque and yet you are the number one show in your country and I feel that things shifted in Hollywood after that because it gave them the confidence to believe that it could be done because Canada had done it first. And Canada, I don't think Canada really intended to have, you know, no one at CBC could have predicted a show made in Saskatchewan about a little mosque in a broken down church in the middle of the prairies was going to be the show that was going to launch, you know, CBC in this country again and give it relevancy and really create confidence in the television industry the way that it did. But it but it caught everyone off guard and it, it tilted. I should get tilted Hollywood because then I noticed after that, I started seeing television shows with diverse leads. Suddenly we saw Jane the Virgin and Superstore, even Modern Family. But it, you can you can see those shows came after two thousand and seven, after yeah. Little Mosque after Little Mosque aired because I was asked every year to go to go to LA and pitch a television show and I would sell a TV show to every you know studio after that from the first one I think was um, ABC and then CBS and then ABC NBC and then Fox every year I would sell 
a pilot to them because they were trying to figure out how to make the Muslim show, which I don't think they have to this day. Well, I was going to ask you, yeah. No, they haven't. And it's odd that they haven't. Like, I find it really strange because I, I, from my friends who are in L.A., they say that they're all pitching. Everyone's got some development deal. Everyone's got pilots. Other than Rami, which is a Hulu show. And interestingly enough, Actually, Hulu, was the, could, yeah, yeah. Hulu was the first streamer that aired Little Mosque on the Prairie mm. in the U.S. So to me, it was interesting because Little Mosque aired first in the U.S. It was the first introduction via Hulu to the U.S. market. And then after that, they picked up Rami. Mm. And and Rami actually probably is reflective of sort of the the shifts I think that the the community has gone through where I think there's less and less appetite for sort of programs that are strictly about Muslims as Muslims and when I say that I mean as religious individuals and more so as you know individuals who maybe have a particular cultural background and of which Islam is part of that sort of myriad of factors that they're dealing with um so so maybe less less of a focus but it's interesting you know after you see the success of of, of big shows you know and it, cosby's now a, a a rude word but you know um fresh prince um everybody hates chris um that there, there are lots of shows that showcase kind of minoritized identities as the main characters and you know I feel like it happens again and again and people are like oh my god it's a formula that works and then you have to wait another 10 years for somebody else to get a break for uh you know at, at actually trying to to do the same or a similar thing with a different concept let's say um I was going to ask you about the the shift you see in um, representations of Muslims in TV, in Hollywood, in film world, where, uh, as you say, you're, you're regularly pitching. I'm very conscious that compared to, you know, uh, 2005, 2010 even, but definitely going back to kind of the early post 9-11 era, um, there is a different representation of Muslims in the public arena. We now have, you know, women in hijab, you know, modeling on catwalks, you know, um, you know, selling us Burberry handbags and uh, in any number of other um advertising uh, roles, uh, you know, convincing us that uh, because Muslims are, uh, are now uh, well-groomed and shiny, um, that we can that we can also be part of the fray. Uh, and I have my own uh, reservations around um, capitalism's instrumentalization of Muslim identities for the sale of many things we probably don't need. Um, but I was just wondering what your sense is of in, when it comes to the shift, you know, how has that representation shifted? Why has it shifted? Um, and what are the kind of pros and cons of, of where we're at today? I think it shifted because there's more accountability and transparency. Like, like what happened in the publishing industry is like how many books are being published by white authors versus brown and black authors. There was a big movement there. Um, we're we're seeing in the television industry where are the brown and black showrunners? Showrunners are the actual people who make all the real decisions and have power on the show. And even on Little Mosque on the Prairie, the showrunners were white. And mm -hmm. it was very obvious to me that it wasn't going to be a role. Like I was there pitching ideas and writing scripts, and you know, guiding the show. But the real power lay in the showrunner role, and it was understood in those days that that lay with white men <laughs> and 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 I I always just assumed and oh they must be more qualified and they just must be better than me 
but then later on, as stories came out, like there's a famous story about um, the two white men who are the showrunners of Game of Thrones. I don't know if you heard this story. No. But their background, like he actually mentioned it probably to his detriment in a panel. He, one of them mentioned that their background, they had done short films, much like myself, short films. And then suddenly they managed to acquire the rights for Game of Thrones and HBO allowed them to become the showrunners and they had no experience. Can you imagine going from no. short films to Game of Thrones? <laughs> and they didn't know what they were doing. And the pilot, uh, they actually ruined the pilot. It was millions of dollars and had to be reshot. <laughs> so when you think about white privilege, like, you know, like I know in, in a lot of industries, I'm always told, think of, think like a mediocre white man. Because yeah. there was no way someone was going to say, looking at me as a brown woman and saying, okay, well, she's done all these comedy shorts. Let's make her the showrunner. Because, but whereas they would take a white man and give that white man incredible power and opportunity and let him make up and ruin it and let him try again. <laughs> and there would be like no blinking of the eye. And, and so that was reading all these interesting comments on Twitter going like, this is, white privilege like this is classic white privilege for sure and and that brown and you know brown and black men and women aren't given that opportunity and i think we are like, we can't make that mistake a hundred percent and 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 i think that that you know race is a, a a huge factor there but i i also feel like gender plays into this one i feel like women in general have to work so much harder to be taken seriously and so black and brown women have like that double penalty in this particular arena where it's like you're already largely infantilized as a woman in i i think film and tv industry in general um you know let's be honest you're here for aesthetic value only right we'll do the hard work. Um, and I think it's interesting that you, uh, you have to climb multiple mountains on that front. I mean, what about the representations that you are now seeing? Do you, uh, do you see any representations that you have found admirable and that you, that you think, oh, wow, that's like genuine progress in how we talk about, you know, depict Muslim characters? I feel the show that I love the most right now is We Are Lady Parts that came out of BBC. Because that's a beautiful show of women, you know, women who are niqab, women who are hijab, women who don't, you know, wear anything, who are just trying to get together and create a punk rock band, right? Like, it's not related to any story having to do with faith or um, going to the mosque. It's just women wanting to do, have a goal that's, you know, an ordinary goal that's that 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 could be the same as anyone else's goal not everything i feel like of the of, of the spectrum of stories that exist for muslims you know it's always the arranged marriage or the abused woman or something to do with terrorism it's like this narrow slice that continually gets picked at but you know where's the rest <laughs> where's the rest of it it's it's i'm launching a web series in canada um in a week on may 13th here in canada about a divorced muslim woman she's just divorced and her ex gets remarried to a woman half her age. And she's just like beside herself with rage and jealousy. I'm like, where are those stories? Yeah. Where are those universal human stories? And it's about her getting her revenge on her ex by trying to find a boyfriend in time to take his arm candy to this wedding. And you know, it has a lot to do with race politics also, but it's got to do with being a middle-aged older woman who is being devalued in society because she's older and her value has decreased and she's feeling, you know, a sense of loss um, 
and in angst when she sees her, you know, this is a universal theme where her ex moves on to a woman much younger, more beautiful, and and she can see the comments from his horrible friends going, nice upgrade. Does the ex know you think she'll bother showing up? And I thought, let's explore this. Just be, you know, a Muslim woman would go through the same emotions as any other woman. And why do we not see these stories being told? Mm. So it was important to me to tell those stories, just ordinary stories that aren't linked necessarily to the mosque you know, or to praying or to being Muslim. It's just a human story. And what about, so in addition to the work that you do in film, obviously you also write books. Um, why do you write? I write because this this business is so difficult to break into. Like I said, I was writing pilot after pilot after pilot. And the trouble with what writing pilots that don't get made is that the studio owns them. So you don't get them back. So you can't say to someone, well, for the last four years, I've been writing pilots. And you're like, well, where are they? And, and then you're like, well, <laughs> you have nothing tangible to show. And I wanted to own my own IP because I feel like the next the next um, goal for me, besides writing for someone else, is to write and own my own IP and to have my own production company make the product as opposed to having to sell it to another white owned production company, because the power really lies in owning your own IP and making it via your own production company. And so I decided writing would be a way to own, create my own IP and to own my own IP. So I wrote a memoir and I just have written my first novel, Jamila Green ruins everything. And I've had all these production companies circling and wanting the rights and I had them removed. Um, from the the deals when the publishing deals went forward and my agent was like what are you doing and I'm like I would like to make this under my own shingle and I mm -hmm. feel like I have earned the right to do that now because I've all you know I've learned the creative part the show running part but now I want to learn the producing part and it was one of the reasons I decided to make a short form web series so there's six episodes and 10 minutes because I wanted to learn the industry from from the top to the bottom, like every single thing from like negotiating with agents to calculating budgets to dealing with post-production to, you know, getting things out from, you know, in the social media, like, because all those steps that I've learned are the same steps that would exist in a half hour show. But I need to know those steps so that I can now earn the confidence of a streamer or a broadcaster and say, yeah, give me those millions of dollars because I have a team built around me, a business affairs team that can do it. And here's an example of a million dollar show that I did on my own. And so that's my goal is to be able to get that power by owning the IP and doing it under my own production company. And that's where I feel is what's the next step for people of color for the BIPOC community is to do it under their own production companies, not always have to sell it to someone else. And so for somebody who's listening, who's thinking, well, what, what difference does it make? Why do I need to have my own production company? Why does, um, you know, owning your own, I mean, I think one of the most obvious ones, um, was the Makeda Cole story with, um, uh, yeah. Uh, you I know, may destroy you. I may destroy you and her wanting to sell. She got a fantastic offer. Well, what seemed like a pretty damn good offer, uh, a million a million pounds uh, was on the table to her. From who was it? The first people to offer her the million? Netflix. Was, was it Netflix? Netflix? It was, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. And she turned down, and this was her first series, a million pound deal because she wouldn't retain the rights to her own story so for people who are listening to that and thinking well okay I mean it worked out well because Michaela Cole has managed to sell it on very nicely after that and and do very well but why is owning your own IP so essential 
because you know if you own your own ip and you own it without with your company when that show goes on to make money that money comes to you <laughs> and that wealth and power goes to you as opposed to someone else um, who didn't create that ip and all the decision making also lies in your hands if you own it and are the showrunner and i realized that after making little mosque on the prairie because i didn't own it and the person who owns it is now trying to make format rights and deals without including me at all in the creative um, decision-making, like nothing, like I'm cut out of that completely. And it's a really dis disconcerting feeling when you hear about it from someone else, oh, so-and-so is, you know, think writing the pilot and is involved and you realize, but this was, this came out of my heart and mind and my lived experiences, but it doesn't matter because I don't, you know, I had to sell that IP to someone else mm. and they can go and do what they want with it. And there are a lot of repercussions that I had never considered because it was my first show and even there was no way someone was going to let me you know, own it or do it under my production company. I didn't have the experience. But there are repercussions for what happens when you don't own it mm -hmm. and somebody else does, particularly for someone who doesn't come from your background and your faith. And so I feel like now I've earned the right to be able to own my own IP and to make things under my own production company. And I feel that's where the power lies. And the, and the only way that we're going to change this industry is to return power, you know, to brown and black people so that they have the ability to, to make change. I mean, look at what Shonda Rhimes has done at, you know, I mean, she I'm owns, literally watching yeah. Venting Anna right now. I know I'm late to the party, everyone, but yeah. Um, yes. And look at uh, Bridgerton. Do you think it would have had that much diversity in the cast and the storyline if it hadn't been a woman of color who had the power to make the decisions of how that show was going to be cast? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do think that that's a really interesting... Um, uh, Br Bridgerton in particular, I have mixed views about only because um, it feels like... a white world in which black and brown characters have been in a way used to get round the fact that we're still in a very white world. Uh, and I have mixed feelings about that. Maybe, you know. Have you seen second season? No. Does it shift? Okay. It cha yeah, it shifts a lot. Okay. <laughs> I know <shifts a> <laughs> I understand your feelings of first season. But I think the message got through with second season. Yeah. And it's a, well, like, I mean, you know, that's the idea, isn't it? We're all learning and... We're all learning, but you have women who are dark-skinned from Tamil backgrounds who are the leads. Yeah. The, romant the romantic leads. Yeah. In a, in a period piece, like dark brown. Not like like light brown, but dark yeah. brown. Darker than even the black characters. But does anything about their identity come through in yeah like I was, it was my son who was saying on reddit the music the south asian music you know south asian elements of dress and okay. food and chai i mean of course there could be more but for me like whatever incremental progress we make i champion because for it's sure. so hard it's so sure. hard to break through and and, um, and i think i don't know if you'll agree with me but i think people who are outside the industry really underestimate how difficult it is to make any progress. I have a lot of friends who are in writers' rooms who were very excited at the beginning of their careers when they would get invited into a writers' room and they were like, oh my God, I'm going to change this entire show. I'm in the writers' room. And then three months later, 
crying because every suggestion has been turned down and yet now their name is attached to the mm. project with all the legitimacy that their name carries because of course they were thinking like I got the upgrade by being put in the writer's room but actually in many ways it was the show that got the upgrade by having their name attached to it and giving a validity to the show regardless of whether their opinions were then reflected in the material that emerged. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, that, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a lot harder on the ground that to yeah, make the which is why we need This is why we need people in power, right? The people who are actually in power, like the black and brown people have to be the showrunners and the owners of the shows in order to make those changes because it's cosmetic right we just add brown and black people into writing rooms for the for the sheen of it you know for the legitimacy it's like oh but they were there but they didn't have any power not really so it well, didn't I, really matter yeah that's i suppose my biggest critique of the sort of diversity drive has been the attempt to sort of insert uh, faces that look like they change the dynamics of industries without ever actually reshuffling the deck, um, which can actually make progress a lot harder in the long run uh, because companies can then say, well, look at look at our staff room and you're like yeah but show me your boardroom <laughs> show me show me who's actually making the decisions, not who's you know photocopying and welcoming guests. Um, exactly. with all due respect to those also very important roles in any company. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, how uh, the, the character of Jamila Green, because when I was uh, reading uh, about her and, and the ways in which, uh, I mean, I don't know, do, do you want to tell us a little, a little bit about the book first for yeah, people who haven't I, yet read it? What's Jamila Green ruins everything about? It is about a bitter, vindictive Muslim woman whose book didn't, she believes her book should be going to the New York Times bestseller list. And when it's clear that it's not, um, she gets very angry at God because she figures she is a brown Muslim woman who belongs to a faith where you pray five times a day. And God is giving all these white people who don't even believe in, in God, you know, all these huge successes. So she's very angry. So she goes to the mosque to convince the imam you know, like she wants to know how you can coerce God to get what you want. And the imam, of course, is appalled. He's this innocent young man from Egypt who's just come to his first, you know, mosque in North America. And he just cannot believe the attitude of Jamila. Like, this is what North American Muslims are like. And he's convinced that something really terrible has happened to her in her past and that she's having a hard time connecting to human beings. And she's clearly disconnected to her faith and her family and her community. And he tries to help her, but by helping her, a, a you know, a very uh, strong series of unfortunate <laughs> events occur, which embroil Jamila in an international terrorist plot. But ultimately, she it, it's like a story about a hero's journey who has to go through an incredible process to reconnect and heal. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> I can explain it. And... Um Firstly, was there anything autobiographical about? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can see a theme in my work. So I was a very bitter, vindictive <laughs> Muslim woman whose um, whose memoir, laughing all the way to the mosque, did not make it to the New York New York Times bestseller list. I really, really was upset about that. Um, 
And I had come off of, as I mentioned, those four pilots that never made it off the ground. And I kind of was just in this kind of spiritual nosedive where I was like, I don't get it, right? Like I'm doing all the right things and I'm doing all the prayers and why are all these white people getting so much success? And I'm, despite everything that I've done, not really achieving this, the success that I feel I deserve. And so I was kind of spiraling into this kind of mode and I started writing this book. And then on top of it, ISIS started. <laughs> and then it was all these, I was like, oh God, no, because I feel like Muslims are forever losing the PR game. They were like the worst, the worst. Yeah, that's so to far they've topped, they've definitely topped it. Yeah. They were topped it. So I was like, no. And and then, you know, when I heard political pundits like Bill Maher saying, well, this is, why are we surprised? This is what Muslims do if, they, if they're left to their own devices. And I, and I got really angry and I was like, no, there's got to be something else here. And I had read this really interesting line in a book. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called The Extraordinary Journey of the Fakir Who Got Trapped in an Ikea Wardrobe. Have you ever heard of this book? I have not, but it sounds intense. Like, I feel like I now definitely need to read this very long-winded title book. (laughs) It's written by, I believe, a French immigration police officer. Oh, wow. And it was a comedy about European immigration law. And it followed this journey of this this man from India. And in it, there was this single line about how the Americans had created a provisional government in Iraq and how they had done it in such a way that it ruined everything and caused a power structure for ISIS to form. And it was the first time that someone had written, uh, I'd read a comedic book about American foreign policy and ISIS and a link to how they had formed because of this, you know, really terrible decision the Americans had made in Iraq. And I started doing more research and I started reading and, you know, it was hard to do research in 2014 because nobody had written books about ISIS and there were only newspaper articles. And so I started going down this rabbit hole of Middle Eastern policy and what had happened in Afghanistan in 1979. And I had read this book by Mahmoud Mamdani called Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Oh, it was one of inc- my all-time favorite books of ever. Incredible ever. book, yeah. And I just poured my heart into, like, he, I'd go to his um, index section and figure out what his um, sources were. And the Los Angeles Times had done this exhaustive research about how every, almost every major incident involving terrorism had come out of Afghanistan. And so I, as I was doing, and, and how they had created these books to indoctrinate children in violence, and it had all been funded by the CIA. They had sh- smuggled books into madrasas in Afghanistan to um, convince the children of, of violent jihad and how they had to kill people. And it was just like, it was like what? <laughs> Where is this coming? Like, people didn't know about these things. And so as I started writing... People still don't know they about still don't these know things, about let's these be things. honest. Yeah. They still don't know. And so I so I was going through this emotional kind of roller coaster where I was talking to God. So I started writing my conversations to God out loud in this, through this character, Jamila. And as I started writing um, and researching, suddenly her journey, I was like, oh, she's going to have to join in this ISIS-like group. And she's actually going to have to go to the Middle East. Like many people were going at the time. There were all these incredible stories. Like so many people say to me, oh, this book is so unbelievable. It's so crazy. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> people were leaving and joining, you know, like girl, like farm hands from Kansas were leaving to go yeah. to join this group. It was incredible. Like young, you know, the Bethnal girls, people were leaving. These stories happened. Um, and 
And this was very real. Like people thought they were going to this panacea of equality and justice because they were, they were suffering so much in their own countries only to find out, you know, things were very different than what they, they had been sold a bill of goods. And so as this book evolved over the years, I had written a lot of history. I had to work with editors who said, there's too much history and background in this book. You're going to have to um, pull it back and really like ground the story through this character's eyes and through her emotional lens. And that's what I started to do. And it took a long time because it was such a complicated book to write. And everything kept shifting in the Middle East as I was writing. It was, of you know, sto- yeah, stories were coming out. Yeah. And so it took about six years until finally um, I gave it back to my agent and then she gave it to publishers and it was sold within days. Mm. There you go. And now it's available to buy. I think so. I just before this call, I, I I said to my agent and publishers, I go, what like what will I tell Miriam? <laughs> because even a, as we speak, the book isn't even available in the U.S. yet because it comes out um, on May 10th. It's available okay. in Canada. It's available in the U.S. The sales haven't been made internationally yet because it's still such a new book. So mm. knowing that, I don't know what to tell people because I don't know how the distribution works. Like like I don't want to you know, advertise Amazon, but they might be the only way. They know. might be the only way. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't know. Hopefully that's, not. The indictment. Hopefully. that's the indictment of a capitalism that we needed. <laughs> um, I, I had a question. Well, um, we'll come back to, to, to where people can, can get it then uh, in, in, in a bit, but I wanted to ask you um, before we go to the rapid uh, fire question uh, section about whether Jamila, was you know there's this almost like a battle between spirituality and materialism that is at the heart of her character right and a lot of what I um am personally quite critical of in terms of how Muslim identity has been instrumentalized in western culture but probably beyond but I'm gonna talk about the one I know like you know Europe and 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 um, North America and um, you know, for me, Islam is, is it's, it's a spiritual practice. It's a guide for life. It's a framework for um, how to try to be an, an ethical being in a, in, in a world that's pulling you in a different, in a million different directions, none, no, most of which are in complete opposition to that. Um, and, and indeed, the search for, uh, you know, a material success, be it fame, fortune, uh, adulation, um, uh, they are all in many ways um, struggles that I sense that our faith uh, teaches us to be very weary of at, at the least um, and, and probably at best to learn, uh, to, offers us practices to try and tame the, that, that part of ourselves. Uh, and yet, you know, we we are where we are. <laughs> both, uh, you know, we're both both of us are, as women in the media trying to achieve um, material successes. And and so, I just I wanted to ask you about that balance and how you've obviously tried to balance it in your character, but also how you try and balance it yourself. Yeah, I I feel like I I came I was having difficulty with that balance when I started writing the book because you could feel the bitterness and anger in her voice and those came from very real places like the fact that I put so much emphasis emphasis in the material success professional success and not enough and the fact that if you are really serving your creator through your work then that should be enough like it should, should technically be enough 
like, and yet it's not. <laughs> no, and I get yet it. it's not. And and there's this feeling of you know professional jealousy. And I think that it took me a long time. I think I was consumed by it for almost a decade after the show. And it took writing the book and kind of coming full circle because I really felt that, you know, like in the book, there's this message where God keeps saying, seek help through prayer and patience. And I keep asking God, but how long does one have to be patient? And what will one get exactly after all this patience? <laughs> right? And what does that really mean to seek help? And and I questioned it, and it's sort of the theme in the book where the imam is like, you have to trust. Like, there's a word called, you know, that you and I know well. It's called tawakkal. Trust God. But if you trust, what happens? Like, what? <laughs> and so it was like going through my mind, going through my mind. And what does that mean? What does that actually mean? And what do you do? And I kind of had to, at a certain point, surrender. You know, when people say with Islam, ultimately, it's, it means like that surrendering. Yeah. And I And I finally said, you have to just surrender. You can't be... Are you going to go crazy thinking about these things? So just just let go and surrender and stop caring. And maybe you should care about people other than yourself. <laughs> maybe you should stop being so internal, like navel gazing and treating yourself as a victim. Because I was raising four kids. And I remember, Miriam, I don't know if you have children. But... I have just one. So four, four sounds in super intense to me. Yeah. I was teaching my son to pray one day and I said, what do you want? Ask God and God will give it to you. And my son said, I ask God that you don't travel anymore until I grow up. And I was like, no, no. Anything, I was like, no, anything but that. <laughs> anything but that. Wow. But the, thing is, but the thing is what I hadn't considered was that he had only been six, I think, grade one. When Little Mosque on the Prairie had aired. And because it had become so political, I had to leave him and the other children and go to Toronto for six months of the year and where we did the shoot and just come home on weekends for six months. And his, you know, his father became the primary caregiver, which is fine, which is what fathers should do. You know, there's nothing odd in that, but he had been young. The other ones had been older and it had affected him emotionally and he had felt abandoned and he had just wanted me to be home for a few years because the, the nature of my career requires a lot of traveling and he just wanted a mom that, you know, he wanted a two household, a parent, a, a household with two parents on the ground, focusing on him. And I realized that God had answered his prayer that, that, that I had meant to be at home and just to be writing all those years. I wasn't, it wasn't like I was doing nothing. I was writing. I was a journalist. I had been a host of a radio show, a television show, but it was important for him to have a mom be there full time for him. And literally when he graduated from high school, became a university student. Um, one on the same day, CBC gave me a license for the web series, and the and the book sold to two publishers, and it was like that answer to that prayer: "How long do you wait? This long until it was best for you and best for the people around you, and you're back. Your career is back, and I'm being interviewed, and I'm I'm inundated, and I feel like I learned something in that cycle of writing that book." And, and being patient and being impatient and crying and being upset and talking to God. And I feel like when you kind of go through that cycle, you come out of it and you realize, because the moment I got that phone call, you know, those two phone calls that same day, I was like, remember this moment, because that was, this is the moment that you despaired and thought would never happen to you mm -hmm. again. And you didn't know if you could ever trust God again, or if it would ever happen again. And God is giving you the answer. 
that you were asking is that you have to trust and then you have to then you have to surrender and you just have to be and then you have to look after the world around you and concentrate on other people besides yourself all the time <laughs> and it was a really important lesson for me because I think I lost it I think I did at a certain point couldn't see you know the forest for the trees is that the saying <laughs> I don't hmm. know yes like I, I I know the saying I couldn't see the the, oh, the other way around anyway either know. way we know we know what you mean yeah no I, and I think you know this industry in particular has a way of um sucking you into that because there is so much of it which is about um public uh recognition of what you do um and I guess um the the thing I always remind myself of is when I think of the shows that I actually love the most they're rarely the ones that are actually the ones that are doing super, super well, by which I mean they're the mainstream shows. Uh, and same for film. I tend to think like, oh, the films that I really rate and that I'm like, yes, that's an amazing film. Very, very rarely is that the blockbuster. Very, very rarely. I can't think of the last time it was a blockbuster. Same with the series. When I look at the Netflix top picks, you know, I, I'm like, no, you all are missing a trick because these are way better. Um, so, you know, I'm when I don't also get the necessarily the breakthroughs on things that I've been working on. I'm I'm often like, well, whose approval am I looking for? You know, and I think for creatives in this industry who, you know, depending on your subjectivity and who it is that you're trying to sell your product to, you know got to be aware that it's there are rules uh to the industry and to what is gonna sell for and and you know what's gonna sell to audiences based on you know when, when it's like here when you sell programming people say well remember that you're selling to S sue in brighton just as long as you know that and that you're happy making content and there's nothing wrong by the way with making content for Sue and Brighton, but make sure you know that you're making it for Sue and Brighton um, or Sue in Essex or, you know, Julian, you know, Hereford or wherever it is. Anyway, um, we must move on to our quick fire round. Uh, <laughs> quick fire questions with quick fire answers. And obviously the questions are really, really simple. First one to you, Zaka, your definition of whiteness. I feel what I've learned about whiteness is that it's based on, it's based on like what I learned about power structures in a writing room is that whiteness is based on who gets the most power in a room and who gets to make the most decisions and gets the most reward. And I feel that, that the, the way the structures had been set up, at least in television writing rooms, it was very much based on white men you know, would get that power and resources and, and rewards, you know, financial rewards. I do feel now it's shifting that because of transparency and accountability, people are saying, where are the, well, why don't we have enough brown and black showrunners? And people are realizing, well, because they haven't been given those opportunities in the rooms. At least I can talk about Canada, that there is now a big shift in, in the Canadian television system where there is now people are asking very hard questions about why aren't there more shows about black and brown people and why aren't those shows being run by black and brown people and where is the training ground and we have in Canada something called BIPOC TV and television and um, TV and film 
sorry, where they are creating boot camps to create shore running um, opportunities and training grounds for black and brown people. So I feel like that's, I guess that in a long winded way, that's my <laughs> definition of whiteness. That's the longest response we've had for the quick fire round so far. Uh, what is the root of racism? I thought about this one long and hard. And I mean, as a Muslim, I will do some religious flexing. When, when in the Quran, when we talk, when we hear when you know an Adam was created and Shaitan refused to bow in front of Adam, I always felt it was because of arrogance and this feeling of superiority. This mm-hmm. person is below me and beneath me because I am made of fire and they are made of clay and my very being is better than that person and I deserve more mm. of what this world has. And I feel that is the root of racism is that, is that certain groups of people based on you know whatever their color or their class or their social standing feel that they deserve more power and they deserve more wealth and they deserve more of the resources and control because they are superior and the other group of per- people are they look at as inferior and as not deserving of and i feel that is a root of racism what is the opposite of whiteness i think social justice and social equality that that we work for you know inclusion that we work for fairness and justice for all people on all levels is that short enough? That's short enough. That's short <laughs> enough. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? In the second season of Bridgerton, I would say <laughs> the post-racial world has been achieved. For some strange reason, patriarchy still exists in a post-racial world. No! <laughs> I know it's very odd. It's post-racial, but I, but it's it's a bizarre. You watch it and go, well, it's post-racial. Yeah, that you could definitely say that. You know, brown, dark-skinned women are considered, you know, just as attractive as white women, and 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 there, there's no competition. It seems, but patriarchy is very, very real. I would say that it's desirable. Of course, it's desirable. Is it achievable? I think that the whole, you know, when it says in the Quran, I have created you in different tribes so that you will make it to know one another. I think that is the quote from God saying to us, you have to try to achieve. Whether or not you achieve or not is the point. It's that you are here on earth to answer to me, but what are you going to do to achieve it? And I think that is that is the answer to the question is that it doesn't matter if it's achievable or not. We are here to try to achieve it and do whatever you know, God has given us in terms of our, you know, strengths and talents and abilities, whatever power that we have to do the best that we can do with whatever we have, whatever we have been given to attempt it. And on that note, Zako Nawaz, it is my uh, great pleasure to thank you for joining us on this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. If people want to connect with you, your ideas and your work, is there somewhere that you'd like to refer them to? Particularly yes, if they'd like I, to find your book. I have a Twitter account at Zarka Nawaz, uh, Instagram account at the real Zarka, because I think I screwed it up and that somebody, I think I didn't have, I couldn't get the, the Zarka Nawaz because I messed that up. But anyway, and then uh, Facebook at Zarka Nawaz. I, all, my, all my stuff is um, tweeted and linked and out there. Hopefully the book will be out there too. It's just it's very early days for it. Don't worry. It's coming. If you can manage to get a hold of a Canadian or a U.S. um, publisher, like uh, Simon & Schuster in Canada and HarperCollins in the U.S., likely you can order directly from them too. 
Good to know. All right. Well, uh, thank you once again for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify on and SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much.